When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Thank you for listening to this Podcast One Sportsnet production. Available on Apple Podcasts and Podcast One. Hey guys, have you checked out the official Lakers podcast yet? It is better than ever this season. Join host Mike Trudell and co-host Aaron Warsul every Monday night as they discuss the Lakers news of the day, break down the games from the week, and have exclusive interviews from players, coaches, and staff. That's especially great because we just crossed the Lakers taking on the Clippers on Christmas Day, so be sure to tune in to the official Lakers podcast to get all the game highlights. Welcome to Real GM Radio. I'm Danny LaRue, your host, and so happy to have you with us for this episode. My guest is Jared Dubin, man with many outlets, and we talk about a lot of different topics. First, his piece, really interesting one for 538, talking about Will Barton, Raptor, RPM standout, and how and why that's the case, which is really interesting. I would say to read that piece probably before you listen to this. Then we also talk about the title picture, how things could change between now and the end of the year, and some other really interesting topics. He and I are both CBA cap guys, so we get into some of that stuff as well. So hope you really enjoy it. Episode is brought to you by betonline.ag. Use that podcast one promo code for a 50% sign up bonus. This episode runs about an hour 10. I think you'll really enjoy it. Thank you so much for coming on. Having me, man. Always a good time. I want to start with the piece you wrote. I really enjoyed it for 538. And it, it really started with. Uh, a useful, like an intriguing premise, which was why in the world is Will Barton so high in what 538 calls their their uh, Raptor metric with, for for player ratings? And what I really en- what I enjoyed most about it was the way that you did something that as communicators, I talked about this a little bit with Seth last week. Like our, part of our job is to explain how things are the way they are. And I thought that you did a good job of kind of going through the different elements and say, okay, this is what it likes. This is what it doesn't like. And this is why Will Barton is doing really well in that thing that it likes. Yeah. I mean, uh, I can't take credit for the premise of the piece because it actually came from uh, Micah Cohen, who I think his title is managing editor or he's one of the editors uh, at 538. And basically he just posted into the, the sports Slack one day, you know, who is Will Barton and why the hell does he rank sixth in Raptor? Um, and uh, I happened to be sitting in there because one of my uh, previous pieces was going through editing at the time and I was communicating with the editors over Slack 
Um, and that intrigued me because I was like, yeah, why the hell is Will Barton sixth in Raptor right now? He, he actually dropped down from sixth to eighth between when Micah asked that and when the piece went up. And he's actually now in a tie for 10th uh, with Rudy Gobert at the moment. But I basically went through and just looked at all the different components of Raptor and like, why was he rating so highly? And I knew Barton was playing well and that he was having a pretty good season, but it didn't make sense to me at first glance why he would be, you know, sixth and then eighth either. And I basically just went through all the different components. There's an offensive component, defensive component, and there's a box score and an on-off. And I basically just went through looking at all the different things that go into Raptor and why it would think so highly of Will Barton. And it basically just came down with, like, he was contributing at an above-average level across a bunch of different categories at his position and doing it almost exclusively in the context of really good lineups because the Nuggets play their starting lineup more than any other five-man unit in the league. And it's destroying teams by like more than 11 points per 100 possessions so when you're playing well in the context of only good lineups and doing things an above average level for your position you know specifically barton's shooting he's at over 40 percent from three for the season at the time the the piece went up which was i think the day before christmas um you're gonna turn out well you know some of it is he's benefiting a little bit more than he probably should from the on-off component you know he, he ranked significantly higher in on-off than he did in the box score component but you know some of it is just that he's playing well you know he's rebounding well for his position shooting well for his position doing a little bit more in terms of playmaking than he had in previous years specifically compared to last year when he played most of last year hurt so i, I think it's a combination of playing well and also just probably benefiting more from the on-off component than he probably should have. And the on-off part, something you brought up in the piece, which makes sense to me, but I hadn't really thought about, is that 538's metric, which makes total sense, it also accounts for opponent quality. And so if a player is starting in closing games, that means they're playing a higher proportion of their minutes against talented opposition. So it's not that they're crushing backup. So from a model building perspective, that is something else that you want. And since the Nuggets play their starters a lot and their starters have done very well him being on the floor for that helps strengthen those on-off values right and i mean it's also one of the things that came through was three of the four other starters had also actually been outscored not just had a worse net rating but had been outscored in the minutes that they were on the court without barton which is pretty interesting to me at least i mean having you know a slightly worse net rating would be one thing but going from like plus 11 to actually negative for the most part for those three guys um obviously helps the on-off ratings there too because a component of it is the on-off um the difference in the on-off for the players you play with and then the players you play with the players they play with i, I don't know exactly how to calculate it you know uh, Nate Silver and Neil Payne, who created it for the most part. Um, and I believe our friend Seth Partner had some input too, just in terms of some of the tracking data and the way it was used. Um, they're much smarter than I am, and, and they went to those deeper levels. But I know that that's a, a piece of it as well. Yeah, it's, it's pretty amazing. And he does have a meaningfully better net rating for the season than all of the other starters other than Millsap. But then there's some other reasons why Millsap is a little bit different. He, he missed a little bit of time and he's played fewer minutes than Barton. So I think there's some selection selection issues there. And then another thing that was notable in, in the piece and going through it from my perspective as somebody who's less familiar, you know, there's so many models out there. I don't have a nuanced opinion on on most of the the newer ones just because i don't know them well enough was the idea of defending without fouling and i am a a big proponent of the importance 
of foul-free basketball because of all the other spillover effects it can have of a I mean the most basic is if you foul a lot then you're not on the floor as much Jaron Jackson is a good example of that or Miles Turner before he got a little bit better at it there are lots of examples mostly bigs but you get through it but then the other parts of it guys getting to the free throw line opponents getting in the bonus earlier all of those sorts of things are real tangible benefits so if a team is defending well when a player is on the floor that player is not fouling a lot it, it makes sense that the model would treat that well, sort of in a, in a way like Clay Thompson is used sometimes as the, the limitation of some of the other models, of, of some models, because he doesn't get any steals and doesn't get any blocks, and most of the players who don't do those things are bad defenders. So you would understand why a model would think that a guy who doesn't do those things would not be good. Yeah, I mean, it, it definitely makes sense. I mean, when you consider the fact that there are essentially only four ways that a possession can end. There can be a made shot, a defensive rebound, um, a, a turnover, or a shooting foul. So you want to get players that can contribute to the good results for the defense. And the good results are defensive rebounds, missed shots, uh, steals, and avoiding fouls. Like that's why you know the the four factors are are those things. And uh, it it just so happened that Barton was doing quite well uh in a bunch of those things and especially in terms of rebounding greater than you would expect given the positioning of him and the guy closest to him at the time of the shot that was something that just digging through some of the non-public tracking data that i was able to find out and then you know again the the part you mentioned avoiding fouls i mean when you combined it with his lack of turnovers and his uh above average steal rate the the Raptor, it, it includes um, an offensive bonus, actually, for steals because they create transition opportunities and uh, a defensive detriment, or I don't think detriment is the right word, but um, uh, a debit, I guess, it, for turnovers because it creates transition opportunities for the other team. So That, that, th- that feels very Doc Rivers, DeAndre Jordan-esque. Remember, remember that when he was trying to argue that part of the reason DeAndre Jordan should win Defensive Player of the Year was his offensive rebounding, which there actually is some concept of that. It's just not the way we think about things. Yeah. Um, I mean, it does make sense on a certain level because you're preventing teams from getting defensive rebounds and getting into their offense. But I think, I mean, even Doc was one of the first guys to uh, to talk about the, the lack of value in offensive rebounding compared to getting back on defense. That's so true. It was, it was interesting that he was was one of the guys that talked about that well i mean doc one of the notable one of the most memorable things of his tenure is how well he advocates for his players i mean and that and understanding that the media game is important for the you know the satisfaction of the guys that you're and you know it's a, it's not a constituency of one it's a constituency of like 15 but it is important to do that and so i think doc understands that he can say something like that and even if people roll their eyes and Nate and I make fun of it or you and I or whatever that there's that there's value to it outside of that group and he's his approval of those 15 is far more important than our approval because we don't matter I would say that there are some organizations where it's a constituency of one. Uh, whatever organization LeBron is in is usually a constituency of one that you have to appease. And we've seen that in Cleveland and sometimes in Miami, although not quite as much. And that was part of why he left to go back to Cleveland. And then we saw it in Cleveland again, and we're seeing it a little bit in uh, in L.A. So, yeah. One of the big picture things that I wanted to discuss with you and you and I, you know, we have these conversations both on the pod and sometimes off the pod on Twitter or Gchat or whatever is 
thinking about the championship contention and championship race and and something I think this happened when I was talking with our our mutual friend and mutual former boss Matt Moore about when we were doing a tears pod about which teams are like the top tier title contenders because obviously you could, there there's maybe a group where you can make a yeah maybe kind of argument I think there's a group group of teams there just like every year but what what I notice and I'll I'll, I'll frame it in terms of my own thoughts I, I don't usually like to do that but I think that's it could be useful here so when the season started my top tier of title contenders was in no particular order the Bucks the Clippers and the Lakers. And what I thought was so notable about the season so far is there have been a lot of things that have surprised me, but I don't think anybody has either gone into or fallen out of that top tier for me. And I was wondering if you felt the same way. I think I had a little bit wider of a tier just because I wasn't sure um, how quickly things would come together for the Lakers. I wasn't sure how aggressively the Clippers would load manage or how quickly they would gel or, you know, if and when Paul George was going to come back and what he would look like when he did after two shoulder surgeries. Um, I was also um, very aggressively high on the Jazz because I liked uh, what they did with their offseason so much. And I thought that it was like exactly what they needed to maintain their defense and take their offense to a new level. That has sort of turned out to be slightly wrong on both fronts just because of, you know, the defensive slippage they've had just a little bit. And in terms of just Mike Conley having such a poor season offensively and then some of the other guys that they signed not really contributing offensively either. Jeff Green, Emmanuel Moutier, um, Dante Exum contributed essentially nothing before they contributed or before they traded him. Um, so I think I was a little bit higher there. And then I, I was so high on the Sixers defense that I thought if they could figure things out offensively that they would be in that group too. Um, so I think I had a, a little bit of a wider tier and then I thought, um, Houston and Denver could possibly push their way in based on, you know, if Houston could figure things out defensively and if Denver could get, you know, internal improvement, which that they were going to be counting on. Um, I didn't count on Nikola Jokic essentially just deciding to, you know, to pardon my language, not give a shit for the first month of the season. Um, and uh, I don't know that I counted on James Harden reaching a uh, completely new level on offense that I wasn't quite sure was possible. So I don't know that that those teams have necessarily joined it, but I think I started off with a wider tier um, and it's sort of been narrowed to Milwaukee, the Lakers, the Clippers. And like, I think if I had to put teams in there next, I think the team I might have in there next is actually the Mavericks. Their offense. Interesting. The idea, the theory being that their offense is so good that they're they're they can beat other teams. Yeah, and just Luca looks like one of the five or so best players in the league. And I mean, when you look at them in terms of point differential and net rating and SRS, which you know adjusted for strength of schedule, like they look like the next best team to me. You know, I, I'm skeptical of them in certain aspects in a playoff context because I just think you can attack so many of the guys on their team um, in certain actions on defense. Like, I think you can attack Luka. I think you can attack Porzingis. I think you can attack, like, if they have Jalen Brunson out there or Tim Hardaway out there. Like, I think there are so many different guys to target defensively, but the way their offense is, I mean, it's a top 15 offense of all time, but in terms of 
like it's the number one offense of all time in, in terms of just pure offensive rating at basketball reference, but it's top 15 in terms of when you adjust for era, it's like six and a half percent better than the league average, which is pretty ridiculous. Um, so when you have an offense that's that good, you're in the mix. Like if you can find a way to just outscore teams, I think that smart teams are going to to figure out how to make them play defense. So I don't know that I would necessarily have them in there, even if their net rating is better, I think, at the moment than the, the Lakers and the Clippers. Um, and I think it might be better than the Celtics. I'm uh, not sure based on what happened yesterday, but I think they might be the next team that I would have in there just because... You know, I'm not as confident that the Celtics defense is going to hold up as I am that the Mavericks offense is going to hold up. Um, so that's sort of where I'm at right now. But I'm willing to be talked out of that. I hadn't looked it up in a while. And I'm going to go through the top five in SRS. This is available in Basketball Reference. And so, as you said, that incorporates uh, it's the simple rating system. It, it, it's point differential, strength to schedule type stuff. So this is from five to one. Five is the Lakers. Four is the Clippers. Three is the Celtics. Two is the Mavericks, and one is the Bucks by a mile and a half. I think the Bucks, by the way, are like the best ever in SRS. They're the best ever in point differential, best ever in net rating. Their defense is one of like the 20 best ever at the moment, you know, the same way adjusted uh, for era. I mean, they're one of like, I think, two teams in history that are at least 5% better than average. On offense and defense, it's them and the '96 Bulls. Um, sorry, '90 or uh, which whichever Bulls team won 72 games. I always forget if it's '96 or '97. Um, but yeah, I mean, they look like an all-time juggernaut that people are just not necessarily willing to believe is an all-time juggernaut because it's like Giannis is the best player, and the difference between him and the next best guy is so big that it doesn't seem like they should be that good of a team. Right. And and there's also this weird conflation that it makes sense. So I should probably shouldn't degrade it as being weird because the Bucks lost in the Eastern Conference Finals, particularly the way that they did. I think there are people who have skepticism about them as a as a title team. And, and certainly that is that can be justified given what happened, even though the team that beat them is no more. And the team that could have beaten them in the finals is also no more. But it is worth drawing the distinction, and it's so funny that I did this a lot during the 15-16 Warriors season when they, when they won 73 and then didn't win the championship between regular season and, and overall like team quality. And so this Bucks team is a special, special, special regular season team, and I genuinely hope, and we don't know how the season's going to go, especially Giannis is missing a couple of games due to back issues. We don't know how this is all going to play out that people can appreciate what this is without having to put everything in a title context. And it's very possible that the Bucks win the championship this year. They're a fabulous team. They will, you know, the East is more challenging than I thought it would be, but I still think they have great personnel to make it through. And I, I don't know. I think that there are times where the t- ringer bust concept makes it a little, makes it not a little bit, more than a little bit unfair to some of these truly special teams. I definitely agree with that. And I think, you know, more that more so than the fact that they, you know, lost in the conference finals last year or even who they lost to, I think the reasons to be skeptical of the books are just they don't Mike Budenholzer does not believe in 
the kinds of maximizing your uh, best players in the playoffs strategy that so many other teams believe in and that we've seen work so well for specifically, you know, like the Warriors and the Cavs over the last couple of years and then with the Raptors uh, last year as well. You know, he was directly asked during last year's playoffs, like, why won't you play Giannis more minutes? He was still keeping him at like 32, 34 minutes game or whatever it was. And he basically said, like, we don't think that playing Giannis 40 minutes a night is the best plan for us. We think that having him at full strength in six or eight or nine minute uh, stints is the best way to use him. So that's what we're going to do. I flat out like I just don't agree with that. Um, It's uh, it's obviously a philosophy that, that some people have and some people don't. But it's also I think, you know, we've seen both last year with Milwaukee and then in his previous stint with the Hawks that he's going to run his offense his way. And there's like, if teams try to make you play left-handed, they're not going to do that. They don't necessarily have it in them to beat teams left-handed just in terms of going to something that is not their primary offense. Um, And that can become a problem at times too, as we saw last year against the Bucks. So it's, it's less who they lost to and when, than just the specific decision-making from a coach who I think is one of the best coaches in the league, but is has in the past at least not been willing to do the kinds of things that tend to maximize playoff performance. The point on Budenholzer is a fantastic one, and I really like the way you articulated that. And there's a, a corresponding part, which you touched on, but I want to emphasize a little bit more, which is there are certain teams and certain sets of personnel. I, uh, Matt and I talked about this with the Celtics a couple of years ago when they ended up making a run to the Easter Conference Finals, but the, the teams they beat were not exactly illustrious. That what they do is really effective against is, – is really effective against, let's say, the bottom half of the league. Like they'll just crush those teams and then it works well against the next tier – but then when you face the best of the best, it becomes problematic. And so for the Bucks, that's giving up a ton of threes and some of the elements of their offensive philosophy. And so there are, you know, there are strategies, there are players that work significantly better. I mean, I've, I've used DeMar DeRozan as a stalking horse here, but there's a reason for it. And that is that there are certain players who are far more effective when they have a physical advantage or when teams don't have a chance to adjust to them. And so they do really well. But then when they have Kawhi Leonard on the other side of the court or they have LeBron James, that can be a problem. And what happens is the best teams in the league have a higher proportion of the players and schemes that cause problems. And I think that's one of the things that gives me pause about the Bucks is that there is this selection bias that the best teams in the league are going to have the best players and they're going to have guys that give trouble to Giannis. And that was something that struck me. And yeah, I mean, now we're, we're seeing these dealing with back trouble and the Bucks were missing some players that Nate and I did the Bucks Sixers game on Christmas day and seeing the way that Joel Embiid stymied Giannis. And it wasn't scheme. It wasn't anything else. It was just Joel Embiid being a massive human being and an immensely talented basketball player that made Giannis, as physically gifted and prodigiously talented as he is, think twice about some of the stuff that he never thinks twice about. And it is hard, unless Giannis develops a jump shot in the next five months, to see those things structurally changing. That all makes sense. I do think, though, that because of the way this conversation tends to be 
structured, it sort of underrates the Bucks and how good they are. And like, because uh, agreed, and thank you for pointing that out. Yeah, we we try to pick apart the case because they're so good and it's like what would stop them is sort of the dominant conversation and that becomes like are they willing to do this can they be the defense that does that and i do think it's notable that that Giannis this year is taking so many more threes than ever before and is shooting them so much better than ever before even though he obviously still is not shooting them all that well but like for for that dude to be shooting whatever it is like 32 33 percent on i think five or six attempts per game i mean that is pretty unbelievable based on where he was uh just a few years ago when he was essentially refusing to shoot threes and that that does change things i think in a in a pretty real way and i think you've seen that just in terms of the way their offense is able to do just a little bit more than it was able to do last year um the the issue comes in when a team just says not so much okay Giannis, you can shoot those threes but not only can you shoot those threes, but everybody else can shoot threes too. The only thing we care about is just the way the only thing you care about is taking away the paint. That's what we're going to do too. And that was, I think, what you saw with the Sixers on Christmas. They were willing to let Giannis shoot from three. They were willing to let Chris Middleton shoot from three and DiVincenzo shoot from three and Sterling Brown and Ilyasova and Brooke Lopez and literally anybody else. They were like, okay, you can shoot from three if you want. The only thing we care about is not letting Giannis score at the rim. And that, to me, is the interesting thing to see how they decide to deal with that, as opposed to just, you know, we have one player who can stop him. Because I I think Joel Embiid did do, obviously, a very good job of stopping him that game. I don't know necessarily how repeatable that is. You know, Giannis is the best paint scorer since Shaq. Um, But just how they respond to the idea of, we're going to play defense the way you play defense and just take away the paint at all costs and let anybody else do whatever else they want. And that also ties in with personnel. When Al Horford signed with the with the Sixers away from the Celtics, what I first thought of was this team is just so physically dominant on defense. And one of the other storylines of the Christmas Day game, and Nate brought this up well when we're doing the NBA cast, was a, another place that the Bucks can go a lot of times if Giannis isn't going is Chris Middleton. And Middleton, he got some threes up, but by and large, he couldn't create as much one-on-one because the Sixers don't play defenders that he has a meaningful physical advantage on. You know, like may, maybe at moments, you know, he could get on Josh Richardson, but Richardson is a gigantic pain in the ass to score against and to dribble against, do all that. But everybody else, I mean, Ben Simmons is a legit 6'10". Horford, Joel Embiid, and and Middleton, you know, he can't do the, he's not as strong as Kawhi, so he can't do the, like, I can get to my spot against anybody else, and that was shocking too. Now, it is worth noting that those two structural things, I don't think they're going to change theoretically in a seven-game series unless one of these teams makes a trade. I don't expect either team to make one that paradigm shifts enough to change that. However, one of the other things that will change this a lot is the Sixers not hitting every jump shot imaginable and all the spillover effects that that has. So not only is it goosing the Philadelphia offense, but that's also taking away Milwaukee transition offense opportunities and adding Milwaukee half-court offense opportunities, both of which are just huge swings. I mean, that's the idea of feedback loops really came from that idea of when one team is when one team is making life significantly easier on themselves and harder on their opponents because of something on the other end, something which honestly many of the times is is unsustainable. 
Right. I mean, the, the Sixers shot 11 of 22 from three in the first half, and that was what helped them build whatever it was, like a 20-point lead or so at halftime. And, I mean, the likelihood of them hitting... 11 of any 22 consecutive threes at any point between now and the and the end of the season seems pretty low to me, let, let alone in, in one game or in one half. So that's something that's not necessarily a repeatable event just because of the way their team is structured and the, the general lack of elite shooting they have. Um, so the, that obviously played into just that specific game. One thing I do think is interesting, though, just in terms of the way you mentioned, um, you know, Middleton not having necessarily the type of physical advantages against the Sixers that he does against some other teams and how that was the case against the Raptors in the playoffs last year, too. I mean, so much of the way the Bucks built their team is built on like they're just bigger than everybody else at most positions. I mean, Middleton is, you know, 6'9", almost 6'10", at small forward. Giannis is, you know, 6'10", 6'11", whatever he is. Brooke Lopez is 7'1". I mean, they're so much bigger at the forward positions than almost every other team. But that's not the case with the Sixers, as you mentioned. That was not the case with the Raptors last year because of how big Kawhi and Siakam uh, and, and Mark Gasol were and even Serge Ibaka is. And then even though the, the Raptors' guards were small, I mean, Kyle Lowry is six foot, but he weighs like, you know, whatever it is, like 200 pounds, and he's probably the strongest point guard in the league. So it's it's not even like you have necessarily a physical advantage there. Like, you go post up Kyle Lowry, like... That's not a, a positive value proposition either. And, you know, the same thing with the Sixers. I mean, Ben Simmons is 6'10", 6'11". Josh Richardson's like 6'6", 6'7". I mean, it's not like you have uh, a big advantage there either. Um, so it is just, it's so much more like-sized guys going up against each other. And again, it, it's taking away one of the advantages that the Bucks typically have against most, most teams. And that's not to say that the Bucks can't beat a team that's as big as them. I mean, look at them this year. They beat everybody there, whatever it is, 28 and 4, 28 and 5 or whatever. Um, so they, they obviously are capable of doing it. It's just a little bit more difficult than it would be against a team like, say, Boston, who doesn't have that kind of size at every position. Right, and that's also why the the Eastern Conference playoff picture is is so compelling. Not only because of the teams that I don't think necessarily have the horses to go after the Bucks, but also just how they get ordered. And something that I think is, you know, it's a little early to, to start obsessing over this, but I think it's really fascinating. In both conferences right now, we're seeing a top six and then everything else. And one element of that is, well, then that makes it much more desirable to get into the top two, not only because that keeps you away from the other one, you know, the one or the two, but also because then you don't get one of those six teams. And remembering the separation that we've talked about, the Bucks, you know, being an example of this and numerous other teams, of the, the disparity between regular season success and, play, and and playoff viability. So even if we think, let's say, theoretically, depending on how things go at the deadline and everything else, that the Bucks and the Sixers are the two best playoff teams in the Eastern Conference – it is entirely possible that they are not the number one and number two seeds in the Eastern Conference. Right. I mean, it's entirely possible that the Bucks could go through the whole Eastern Conference playoffs without playing the Sixers um, or the Raptors. They, they, they could wind up playing the, the Celtics and the Heat or the Pacers. You know, they could play the, I mean, and, you know, the, the Raptors are obviously a, a much different team this year, and they've been dealing with a whole bunch of injury issues on their end. So it's difficult to say where they're going to end up. But, 
I mean, it's entirely conceivable they could go through the Eastern Conference playoffs without meeting the team that is the single best matchup against them. You know, and, and that ties in with something that to me has been what I got most wrong so far about the Western Conference is that I had this theory, and it was uncomfortable in some ways for me to, to, to think this way, but it was that I thought the Clippers and Lakers were unambiguously the two best playoff teams in the Western Conference. But I thought that both due to adjustment, which is something, you know, Ken Peltz talked about that in terms of the RPM modeling and other things, is that, you know, adjustment takes time. Also, those two teams compared to the Rockets and the Nuggets, let's say, they had the, the, the because of their older players or players with injury stuff like Kawhi, they had a higher incentive and propensity to load manage. So my thought was, even though those teams were, let's say, the best on paper, that they would end up falling back. And it shouldn't be a surprise that the teams that I thought were the best on paper have been the two best in the conference, in my opinion, over this part of the regular season. I think that it's a little bit surprising. Like, I don't know that it's necessarily not a surprise at all, just because, again, I I thought given the way LeBron teams in the past, when you put together a super team, have started off slowly and come on towards the middle or end of the season, I do think it's a little bit surprising that they got off to such a fast start um, with the exception of they played one of the easiest schedules in the league to start the year. That was something that jumped out at me right away when every year the schedule comes out, I go through and very quickly, well, not very quickly, it usually takes me a few hours, uh, calculate the strength of schedule for each team uh, overall pre and post all-star break and then month by month. And they had, um, I think the second easiest schedule uh, for October, November, Um, so that was something that jumped out right away in terms of enabling them to get off to a hot start, but also they just kind of clicked right away, you know, specifically the combination of LeBron Davis and Danny Green. I mean, they just kill teams when those guys are on the court together, which I mean, makes a ton of sense. Like LeBron, a big guy and a shooter generally destroys teams. Um, and, and that has worked out obviously pretty well for them. The, the Clippers being able to have as much success as they've had while having so many guys in and out of the lineup due to injuries and then just load managing Kawhi uh, throughout the season, that I think is a little bit surprising just in terms of like, I thought it was entirely possible the Clippers would get like the five seed in the West just because they were going to be so aggressive in terms of their load management. Um, and I think there, there was a time where they were sort of in that range uh, for a while, but you know, they have been one of, you know, obviously, the, the two or three best teams in the conference, I think, when you look at, you know, net rating. And I think at the moment they're they're in third uh, in the standings. So, yeah. Well, and it is worth noting the Lakers right now are, per cleaning the glass, outperforming their point differential by the second highest amount in the entire league. Number one being the Miami Heat, another one of the league's best success stories. So, you know, if you if you balance that out a little bit, you take away, two, so they're outperforming it by 2.4 wins so far. Then, then they're, you know, they're... 26 and 9 that's still really good but it's a little bit less ridiculous than, than what they've been so far and then if you account for schedule strength and all that which that measure by five thirty or by uh, clean glass does not then you get into that and with the clippers you're right i mean that that is the part of it that has to be noted as a part of their story so far is that not only with Paul George missing so much time at the beginning, load managing Kawhi, which they've done, but also Shamit missing time and, and so many other guys. And I mean, Jermichael Green just missed a bunch of time and they'll, they still have a lot to figure out. And so the Clippers should be very, very happy about where they are right now. Plenty more to talk about with Jared Dubin, but first a message from betonline.he. We are in a really fun 
part of the sports year. Week 17 in the NFL, which means the playoffs are right around the corner. Of course, the basketball slate is absolutely loaded, but also college football bowls. So whatever you are into, this is a great time to be engaged on betonline.ag. Use the podcast one promo code for your 50% sign up bonus. I'm a Niners fan, so San Francisco, Seattle on Sunday is going to be a big deal for me. Also, I'm doing well in the hashtag Sportsnet Challenge, doing well in my predictions. I think I'm in second right now. Last I saw, I was in second place, um, which I'm thrilled about as a non-football coverer anymore. I also finished second in my fantasy league. Not notwithstanding here. Um, but Bulls, I was just watching LSU beat the stuffing out of Oklahoma. The, they will be in the college football playoff final. That'll be a little bit of way, ways off. Most people will be listening to this after Ohio State Clemson, but there are bowl games going on throughout the next week or so, so you can check that out. And whatever it is, if it's you're, you're going to be watching a game anyway and you want to make it more interesting or you think you have an insight that, that will be useful for predicting how things are going to turn out, whether that is a spread, an over-under, money line, whatever it is, you can do it at betonline.ag. And if you do, make sure you use the Podcast One promo code, which gives you a 50% sign-up bonus, but also tells them that you came from us. So that helps them continue to advertise with this fair program. So check out whatever you're into, betonline.ag, your online sportsbook experts. Part of the, particularly the Western Conference story, the reason, and, and this gets back to the basically the second question we talked about in this, is that the way I split it out into tiers was I had those three teams where basically the theory to me was, was rock solid. And we didn't, you know, for the Lakers and Clippers, we didn't know. But we had a pretty good idea of how it could work out eventually. I mean, they have immense talent and they and then pieces that by and large make sense with, with that other talent. Then the next there was this other group and Philly's kind of in the nether region between these two tiers because the because of the offense defense disparity, was a group that it was like, well, they have there's a theory of it, we just have to see if it actually works. And while you can make an argument that the, you know the Nuggets have had a really good season, especially in terms of one loss record. And yeah, I'm sure it's dis- disappointing that they've lost some high profile games, but I think they've done well overall. But to me, none of those teams, and this is more eye test rather than statistics. None of those teams, Rockets, Nuggets, Jazz. I mean, the Mavericks weren't in that tier for me, but but they kind of have to be now. Or the the Celtics, the Raps, the Heat, the Pacers. You know, none of those teams to me have shown that that really that high high ceiling and realistically unless something really fortunate happens for a team you have to be playing at a super high level you have to have a ton of talent to actually win a championship and there are lots of ways to succeed without it but that's the other big storyline for me is that none of those teams as well as many of them have played as much as some of them have defied expectations none of them have showed that real insane upside that is basically a, a prerequisite for a champion so i i want to start with the the clippers real quick just because i had one more thing that i wanted to talk about with the, or i guess really two more things that i wanted to talk about with them the, the first thing is something that i noticed while watching um them play the lakers on christmas this was just sort of an idea that i had during the game that i wanted to um get your thoughts on that I, I actually said it on twitter at one point like when they, when they play a too big team like the lakers that's so aggressive about cutting off the paint and has so much size i feel like they need to to use landry shamit as sort of the way they used to use jj reddick um and, and how philly used jj reddick the last couple of years where just have him running off a screen or a, a pin down or a flare or, or a handoff or literally anything basically at all times th- when you're in your half court offense just to put on the table the idea of distracting any help defender to get their attention away from the middle of the floor, even like 5%. It would just make things 
just slightly easier for Kawhi and for Lou Williams and for Harrell and for Paul George uh, at any given moment. I, I feel like that's something that they need to do just to unlock a little bit more in the middle of the floor. I, I, I agree with you, and it's also something the Sixers are missing a lot this year, that they that sometimes when they get locked up, it happened against the Magic. We're recording this on Saturday. It happened against the Magic on Friday night before that random like 10-point run at the very end of the game. But they they can get locked up because they don't have that. And it ties in with this idea that I think is so intriguing of, I'm, I mean, this was catalyzed for me covering the, covering the Warriors with Draymond Green, which is if, whether it's because the guy can't or won't shoot, or because the other team has this, this zealous idea that they need to have the, they need to protect the paint, one of the most valuable things you can do with that hang back guy's cover is use them as a screener, as a handoff guy, because that forces the defense to make a choice. You're involving basically two people in an action, and they the other team does not want to involve two people in said action. So you can give up an open jump shot. You can give up an open like path partway to the basket. And those opportunities are going to be there for the Clippers, I think, more often if they use Shamit in the way you're describing. I, I absolutely agree, and that's sort of uh, why the, the point that I made was made. The... Um... The, the connecting point to that was sort of, I think that at the deadline or in uh, the the buyout period, I sort of think they should target another Shamit-like shooter slash distractor, distractor as opposed to Andre Godala, which is the obviously the, the thing that everybody's talking about all season. Because, like, they already have two of the small handful of best wing defenders in the league in Kawhi and Paul George, plus they have Pat Beverly, who can guard basically anybody that plays in the perimeter and some guys that play in the front court and they have Mo Harkless behind those guys like they're covered on wing defense like that's not the need for them to me the need is is another guy to loosen things up for those guys on offense and that's that was sort of the idea that I had during that game just sort of offhandedly the the second idea that I had about the Clippers was you know it seems sort of sacrilegious to say because there's really nobody like him and I hate when people compare guys to him but you know I tweeted about this after the game too just because he made that play at the end like Pat Beverly is the Draymond Green of this team to me just in terms of his ability and willingness to do things that there's really nobody else in the league that combines the the kind of things that Pat Beverly can do and he's such an emotional fulcrum for them I think you see that you know specifically in close games toward the end like he does the kind of stuff that Draymond does just in terms of like the the intensity and the emotion and the yelling at the crowd and things like that like it's so reminiscent of the things that Draymond would do at Oracle um so I I sort of wanted to get your thoughts on that too before I went on to uh you know my my thoughts on like the the Nuggets and the Rockets and the the Jazz and the Mavericks something that those two players have in common is the ability which is very unusual to create defensive value out of thin air like there there are players like Rudy Gobert who create defensive value by their presence and not detracting from that at all. It's, I mean, Gobert is, is a fantastic defender. I haven't processed yet for, you know, we're going to do dunked on awards in a couple days. I'm guessing he's going to be my defensive player of the year so far. But what Draymond and Beverly can do through effort and intelligence is sometimes it just looks like the other team is fine. And then all of a sudden they muck it up somehow. I mean, Draymond had a couple of those. The series that I always think about with that was, it was against 
Portland, I think it was in 16, where just like all of a sudden he was just popping out of nowhere and just stopping drives, stopping different things. And Beverly can do that sometimes too. And what makes it so much fun with Beverly is that he doesn't have the physical height. Not that Draymond is tall in any way, shape, or form, but Beverly is much smaller than he is. But because of his intensity and because of his physical strength and his amazing hands, like that play against LeBron at the end of the game, and because Beverly... I mean, Draymond's better at this, but like when they can do it without fouling, or if we want to think about it in the playoff intensity where they just don't call as many fouls, I think they can really benefit. Now, what the going back to the to the Iguodala point, here is where I would push back, and it is while the Clippers have a lot of good defenders, you need a specific type of strong good defender, physically strong to combat one LeBron James. And while I love Paul George and I love Pat Bev and I love Mo Harkless, I don't really love any of those guys for that matchup. And I mean, to me, the Clippers have to be circling the Lakers as as, a, as their most likely Western Conference playoff opponent that scares them. And so I think it's worth going after that, but they might not be mutually exclusive, especially when you consider the concept of how they could get that Landry Shamit type of shooter. The most interesting question for me about the Clippers with Iguodala is, I think if the intel that, you know, Iguodala as a former Palenka client is that if he's if he's bought out, he's going to the Lakers, a big part of why you trade for him is so that he doesn't go there. You know, it's, it's the, sort of the idea, Ethan Stroud-Strauss said this really well when the Warriors got were going after Kevin Durant, is a big part of it was the nuclear deterrence concept which is not only that you get that player, but also that everybody else doesn't. And so for me, that's the other idea here, is that the Clippers have all this matching salary, they have draft assets, maybe part of why you go after Iguodala, and this might be Iguodala versus a center rather than Iguodala versus a shooter, is so that he doesn't go to the Lakers. That's a good point, and uh, I don't really have a, a, a not a comeback, but like a, a counterpoint to that. I think that's probably true. Um, I do think that the, the shooter seems like a slightly bigger need to me. But like you said, there's no reason they can't do both. Like they could pretty easily, I think, trade for someone like Wayne Ellington, like the Knicks are dumb and you could probably get him for almost nothing. Well, um, or, at- or you or you I mean, this is the tampering that is more nefarious. If you get a bug in his agent's ear saying, if you can get your way out of the Knicks, you can get here. And so so leave a little bit of money on the table and you can join the Knicks. That's tampering. That's a really big problem. And I think that's the one that we should be talking about more because it happens. It unambiguously oh, it happens. happens. I don't know who Wayne's agent is, but like he just seems like the kind of guy like for the whatever it is, 20 minutes a game that you don't have Shamit on the floor. You could have Wayne on the floor for 12 of those and just have him run around screens all the time. Um, he's going to get targeted on defense by certain teams, but he at least knows where to be and he's pretty strong, too. Um, so, you know, he can hold up against certain guys. And I can't imagine he would like he probably should cost a decent amount because that kind of shooting is valuable to anybody. But again, the, the Knicks don't really know what they're doing. So I think you could probably get him pretty cheaply. Um, and then you could still sign Iguodala on the buyout market. And there's, there's plenty of other shooters like that too. That was just the one that came to mind as someone who would, you know, is not making that much money would probably be pretty easy to get. And that would make sense for that role. Um, and then, I mean, I'm curious what you think about, like, I, I think it's Iguodala is probably a higher priority, but like, does the Zubach, Harrell, Jamichael Green front court hold up against like Anthony Davis or even like Jokic uh, in the playoffs? 
it's definitely concerning, especially when you consider the aggressiveness that some of the best of the best go after the paint. You know, either if they were facing a team like the Warriors, I wouldn't be as freaked out about it. Last year's Warriors, not the current ones, obviously. Mm. And but that's not who's the top of the league right now. I mean, the the Bucks go at. I mean, Giannis, you said, and I agree with you that he's the best paint scorer since Shaq. LeBron and AD just crush after that, and they challenge it kind of geometrically in a little bit of a different way that I think is really intriguing. And so I think it is is a very real concern, but at the same point, I wonder who solves that problem or, you know, maybe not solves it, but, you know, does a better job at handling that problem and doesn't take enough away from the other side. So I've been fixated on the idea of Miles Turner for for the Clippers because also why the theory behind that is he's under contract for another couple of years so it's not a one and done situation I think he could fit really well with Paul George and Kawhi and that's the type of thing where you would you would go assets in that direction as opposed to something like Udall because he's not a rental and that that could be really beneficial for for the Clippers you know if they want to become a dynasty or something like that or whatever they can whatever they can get. But the amount of Miles Turners that are out there, you know, guys that move the needle not just for this year but moving forward, that's a very, very small group. And the ones of that group that are attainable and uh, – or sorry, obtainable is even narrower. I think we may have talked about Miles Turner in this exact context before. And I think I said when you brought it up that I was angry that I didn't think of it first. Like, I distinctly remember that conversation. I'm not sure if it was with you or with somebody else, but – that exact fit has been brought up, and I was angry about it well, then. And I'm angry. Here's, here's a question I have for you. I wonder – we're probably not going to see it because I sincerely doubt that the Raptors are going to do anything about it. But I wonder how Marcus would fare in this Western Conference playoffs. And, you know, like there's been the idea of, like, if he could get bought out and go to the Clippers. But I think the Raptors are doing too well, and obviously his equity being a part of a championship team for it to happen. But how would you think about somebody who's more groundbound, like, you know, more of that traditional five? I think it might work. I, I think it sort of depends on who the opponent is. Um I think it works less against, say, Anthony Davis than it does against Giannis. I think we saw the way it works with Gasol against the Bucks last year in terms of just how much he helped their defense, specifically his ability to communicate. But then Davis is just such a, a, a nuclear force in when you put him as the role man in a pick and roll or even as a pop man that where you could say, you know, we're going to have him pop on Gasol and then take him off the dribble very quickly there. It's, it's just much different than the way Giannis attacks where he's going to be the guy where the whole defense is trained on him as opposed to trained on LeBron, who then finds Davis in a certain context. I think it's just a little bit different, and I think it probably works better against Giannis just because you're able to train your defense on him in a different way than you are on Davis. Um, but it, it does make a certain degree of sense. But like you said, um, I think the Raptors are sort of too good for, for that to be really a thing. Um the thing I wanted to talk about with Denver is like, I'm skeptical of the defense just sort of naturally, but I thought um, our, I guess, friend of the program, Mike Pina wrote uh, a pretty interesting piece on their defense a couple weeks ago, just in terms of, they have so much continuity um, with their top guys that it's just easier for them to outperform what you would think their defense would be based on their talent because they have so much institutional memory and so much experience communicating with each other and they've seen the same types of actions as a group so often 
over the last few years that it's easier for them to be better than the sum of their parts defensively. And I thought that was just an interesting concept that I hadn't thought of and didn't consider in terms of their defense being you know, better than I thought it would be this year. It is an interesting concept and uh, something that I've been, but I think for me, the bigger story with Denver is just that their opponent shooting is significant, is significantly worse than you would expect based on shot locations and everything like that. And so one way of thinking about Denver's defense is this. So last year, similar personnel, not identical, but similar personnel, they were pretty close to their current standing in three of the four factors on defense. So they forced similar rate of turnovers relative to the rest of the league, a little bit worse actually on the defensive glass this year than they were last year, and pretty similar in terms of foul rate and all that kind of stuff. So really, the, and last year they were 11th. 11th is quite good. You know, nothing, nothing wrong with that. But this year, they're third. And the reason why they did that big jump is that Despite opponents shooting, you know, not in a particularly better set of locations, you know, more desirable from a defensive perspective, opponents are just missing a ton of shots. They're fourth in effective field goal percentage. And then a stat that Clean the Glass has, which I've become obsessed with, is shot location, basically a location effective field goal percentage. So right now, the Nuggets give up the 11th worst shot mix for opponents, and yet they have the fourth best for fourth worst, however you want to say it, fourth best opponent field goal percentage. It feels like that has to change. And, you know, some of it, and it's not like they have this amazing personnel for, like, unsustainably good shot contests. I mean, they, they could be better than average, let's say, but to have it be that d- disparate seems like something where eventually gravity is going to fall, whether it's in the regular season or in the playoffs. Yeah, that makes sense. I mean, that was sort of the reason that I was skeptical at the beginning of the season. Um, but I, I did think Pina made sort of an interesting point, and that was like not necessarily a counter to the, the shooting look, but just an interesting reason why they could be slightly yeah, better. And, and there could yeah. be something to that. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and that was something where um, pop used to talk about that in terms of the, um, the, the, the way the Spurs played defense when they had the same guys for so long, when they had Tim Duncan and Danny green and Kawhi and Parker uh, and guys like Boris Diaw and Ginobili for so many years, this was something when I wrote a story on defensive communication, uh, I guess it's now going back like, four, maybe five years ago, uh, Pop had mentioned that, um, and Danny Green had mentioned that, and one other guy from the Spurs that I can't remember off the top of my head had mentioned that, um, and a bunch of guys with the, the grit and grind Grizzlies had mentioned that too, and that was why it sort of pinged my radar. Obviously, those teams had better defensive personnel to begin with, so it was easier for them to be good on defense, but that concept is something that I hadn't thought of specifically with the Nuggets, just because I was like, you know, they don't have that many guys who you would think, you know, that guy's a, a, a major plus defender. Um, but yeah, I mean, that that does make sense to me. Um, and I'm still, the Rockets is the thing that holds me back is is their defense. There's just, you know, the, the ways teams try to attack Harden are not the ways that I think you should attack Harden. Most often it's like teams are like, yeah, let's post up our big guy on Harden and like, no. Don't do that. He's super strong. Don't post guys up on him. Make him move his feet a bunch of times in a row and change direction six times in three seconds. Um, well, there, there's an interesting parallel. The way you attack Harden is actually the same as the way you would make you attack Ennis Canner, and that's you make him defend in space and you make them make reads and decisions and have multiple efforts. And a lot of teams do. I think it's the way you attack Jokic too. Yeah, that's true. And and so. Do that, and and parts of that are actually similar with Russell Westbrook as well. Like you try to bait him into mistakes, and then you you attack that mistake and create an advantage. 
Or just keep the action on the other side of the floor, but design it so that eventually his guy makes a back cut. Like a hammer uh, player. So, yeah, a <laughs> hammer player yeah. back cut. Yeah, it's all, all that kind of stuff. Uh, something I thought was interesting, and this is, this is going back to that cleaning the glass stat of location effective field goal percentage versus, versus effective field goal percentage. Here are some of the teams with really big disparities, and this is relative to league rank, not in terms of percentages, between the, the shots that they're forcing and their opponent's success. So on the opponents are shooting better than we would expect side, you have the Orlando Magic, the Minnesota Timberwolves, the San Antonio Spurs, and incidentally, the Golden State Warriors and Washington Wizards. Both their defenses suck, but they could theoretically be better. And on the other side, and this is an interesting one when we think about how these teams are perceived defensively, these are, so these are teams that are benefiting the opposite direction. Indiana, 23rd in location, 5th in success. Miami, 22 and 13. Denver, 20 and 4. And then Toronto, 17 and 3. So like, it, it is interesting. It's like, fascinating teams because Indiana, um, Toronto, and Miami, you would think just like those are just good defensive teams based on you know personnel and the way they are able to, to move and things like that, and then Denver would not necessarily fall in that group, so it's interesting to have them all grouped together. Well, and then the other one, and this is pretty hilarious, because they're, well, actually, I guess Chicago's doing better on defense overall, but Chicago has the single worst shot mix in the entire league, and then they actually are 15th in opponent effective field goal percentage, so actually, I guess that's true. They're ninth in defense. I hadn't realized they were all the way up to ninth right now, but they should be a lot worse, <laughs> even though they have defensive RPM and Raptor darling Chris Dunn as a part of their team. <laughs> <laughs> Chris Dunn. Um, is, there are very few players that uh, more deleteriously affect their team's offense than Chris Dunn. Chris Dunn is also, I, I was, I've thought about this in a couple different contexts, and it, basically of the players who affect the watchability of the games they're in by the most. And so there are some players who, because they're good on offense and bad at defense, just make it more fun to watch. Like Lou Williams would be one of those guys, except for all the fouls. Um mm-hmm. There, there are numerous ones over the over the course of the years. But, like, Chris Dunn, because he's so bad on offense and so good on defense, is one of the more extreme ones on the other end, where it's just he grinds the other team down, and then the Bulls' offense is just so much worse when he's on the floor. <laughs> I hadn't thought about that, but that actually makes a ton of sense. And, and the Bulls are, to me, one of the just the, the most daunting teams to watch. This is something I, I actually wrote about earlier in the season uh, in the opposite effect in terms of the Hornets. The Hornets are so much more watchable this season than I thought they would be, and it's like almost exclusively due to Devontae Graham and P.J. Washington just being better and more fun than I ever thought they would be. But even a guy like Marvin Williams um, is you know, being really fun over there, too. The games where Malik Monk uh, is actually making his shots and or going to the basket is pretty fun. Like That's the team, I think, with the widest gap this year in terms of how much I expected to uh, hate watching them and how much I actually enjoy watching them. Another big factor for Charlotte, Hornets over baby, is that the Hornets are top 10 in both three-point frequency and three-point success so far this year. I would not have expected both of those to be true. One of them, yeah, maybe maybe they take a ton of threes. Borrego seems to want to do that. But they've made 36.4% of them so far. And when I look at that roster. I do not think of a team that's going to make a ton of threes. Yeah, especially like the interesting thing, like they have just a ton of pull up threes and step back threes because Graham takes whatever it is like eight, ten threes a game, and a lot of them are 
obviously off the dribble and even Rogier takes a bunch off the dribble so it's, it's interesting for them to have such a good conversion rate on those two just because those obviously carry a lower shooting percentage than you know your, your spot ups or your pin downs or things like that uh two wild stats on that while i have this tab open detroit is shooting 45.3 percent on corner three so far this year and the Heat are shooting 40% on above the break three so far this year. I wrote about Detroit yesterday. Um, I guess we could go into them a bit. Um, man, that team, like, it's kind of depressing watching them too, just because Blake is so obviously diminished physically and just, um, I guess this, this story hasn't gone up yet, uh, the, the Pistons story that I wrote. But, I mean, to my eye, there are basically only four good things happening with them this year. It's... Andre Drummond getting every rebound in the history of basketball to we don't even really know necessarily what effect. And that's that's actually something that I wrote about earlier in the year, too. Um, Then there's like I think Derek Rowe is having probably his best season since uh, his original injury. He's got like a 30.7 percent usage rate, which is like essentially back where it was in Chicago. And his true shooting percentage is both better than it was when he won MVP and his assist rate is a career high. So, like, on offense, he's just been legitimately quite good. And then they've gotten really good shooting from Tony Snell, 43% from three. Markeith Morris, 41% from three. Langston Galloway, 41% from three. And then Bruce Brown, who was 26% last year, is up to almost 30%, 37% this year. And just given the way Bruce Brown plays defense, um, that just makes him such a valuable player. And then, you know, the, the only other thing that's going well for them is just, like, Christian Wood is playing super well basically everything else has gone wrong for the pistons uh and just blake being so diminished um they're whatever they are like 12 and 20 they're they're going nowhere fast they've got no real ability to improve it doesn't look like they have really any foundational pieces and the guys who are actually playing pretty well this year none of them are under guaranteed contract beyond next season it's uh it's kind of depressing right now in detroit I hadn't looked at Derrick Rose's splits for this in a while. The Pistons have a 117.4 offensive rating when he's on the floor. That is insanely good. And partially because... Best Blake offense Griffin, in the history of basketball. <laughs> basi- and, and basically, and some of this is, of course, Blake Griffin missing, all the, missing a bunch of time and being limited in the time that he's played. That 117.4 drops to 116.6, or sorry, 106.6 when Rose is off the floor. That is incredible. Yeah, that's, uh, yeah, I don't know what else to say. It's incredible. Anything else that you want to discuss? I'm guessing you don't want to talk Knicks, but I mean, if you have any thoughts, (laughs) of course you can. Yeah, I mean, um, you know, I haven't, uh, exactly concentrated on them all that much just because, like... Well, sorry, I have a question for you, not on the Knicks, but on the other team in the greater New York area. Do you have a feel yet for the Nets? Not really. I mean, it's, it's hard to get a feel on them just because Kyrie hasn't played in so long. And you would expect that when they're playing the important games uh, in the playoffs that he's going to be out there. So it's it's just hard to know what to think. Um, you know, I, I do think, obviously, the way Spencer Dinwiddie is playing um, is, is really encouraging. I think that Torian Prince has played better than I expected for a lot of this year. And I think that just given the kind of player he is, you know, a combo forward who's, you know, like 6'8", six, 6'9", six, and has good strength and size... I think that's an important type of guy to have, and it's it's very good that he's playing better than I expected. But just in terms of like 
what they're actually going to look like when the important games come up, it, it's so hard to know just because a guy who's going to have such a big effect on that hasn't been out there in like over a month at this point. Um, so that's sort of where I am on them. Where are you at with them? I I still am. I, I'm not totally sold on it, I, on them in really any respect. I, I, I other than my love of Spencer Dinwiddie and my my satisfaction that Jared Allen is basically taken over the role that I feared that he would not get because of the DeAndre Jordan signing. I love and, Jared Allen, man. Just in, both as a player and in terms of, um, I, I talked to him last year for the zone defense story I did, and he was just really thoughtful about the way they run their defense. So he's he's a uh, he's a good player and a. Uh, great to talk to and a, a good dude too so yeah so i think for me what the, the nets are this year is they're kind of like the magic last year and maybe the magic this year we'll see how things work out as kind of a gap filler where they're i don't think they're great but they're probably better than the bottom and that's enough to get them into the mix and i mean that's you know i talked about how nobody from the outside of the top title tier has has worked their way in something else that's really prominent about this year especially in the east but lesser to lesser extent in the west is that nobody outside of that top group is really showing me much so you know like yeah it, I, it wouldn't shock me if the if the nets finish uh, 37 39 wins something that range and that's what I expected. I picked the under on their over-under, but that could be enough to get them in the playoffs. My thought had been somebody from the bottom is going to break out. They'll win like 44 games, and then that will push a team like the Magic or possibly the Nets down. That has not happened. None of those teams have stood up. And I mean, right now, Pistons, eight games under 500. Bulls, eight games under 500. Wizards, 12 games under 500. Like, it's hard to even see who that team would be. I think the Pistons are the front runners to be that team, but front uh, no runners... Worries. It's the Knicks, obviously. The, oh, obviously. Season. I mean, they have play. They have playoff caliber talent. We know that for sure. Yeah, uh, I mean, I, I guess we can sort of end on them. One of my friends does um, always bug me about them because he's got season tickets and goes all the time. The, uh, a bunch of my other Nick fan friends, who are you know, most of my friends are are Nick fans, and most of the, the rest of them have sort of given up. And just because he's got, uh, he's at the games all the time. He's he's always sort of poking around for my opinion about them and i mean so much of it is just like it was so obvious to me at least that this was was coming um they have probably the the worst group of point guards in the league and when you have that you are not going to be good on offense they are one of the youngest teams in the league and their two best defensive players are like a a 20 year old french point guard who like the team doesn't seem to believe in and a 20 year old center who can't stay on the court and when that's the case you're going to be bad on defense and when you're bad on offense and bad on defense you're a bad team so to me it was sort of obvious that this was coming um and just like i mean i don't know that that external expectations were all that high it does seem like internal expectations were certainly higher than they should have been and that's obviously why they ended up firing the coach i mean some of it is just like they were terrible in clutch time games and if they had gone you know four and five instead of two and nine in those games or whatever before Fisdale was fired they probably uh don't he probably doesn't get fired and he's still the coach um but also just they need to be realistic about where they are they need to liquidate basically anybody that teams are willing to give them value for and just they can't be precious I think this is something that Mahoney wrote about earlier in the season like they need to willing be willing to trade anybody if the right deal comes along. Um, that includes, you know, Marcus Morris. It includes R.J. Barrett, Mitchell Robinson, like literally anybody. There, there should be nobody that's off the table if you get the right deal for them, 
And to me, like the only thing that should matter is collecting as many first round picks as possible. I don't care if they're early, middle, late, get second round picks too. Like you need to have um, an awareness that you are not going to beat the draft without volume. And that's the most important thing. And I would just be prioritizing getting as many picks as you can, getting as many players on their rookie contracts as as you can. That's sort of the only thing that would matter to me right now um, because it's, it's pretty obvious that they don't have um, the talent in-house that's going to take them um, to the next step. And there are certainly guys that look like they can contribute. Mitch Robinson, if he can ever stop fouling, looks like he'll be a good defender. I think Barrett showed uh, a bunch early in the season that is useful. Obviously, he has backslid a great deal over the last two months or so. I think there's um, an above-average player in there somewhere if you put good talent around him. I never saw necessarily the 25-point-a-game superstar scorer that's just going to you know take you by him on his shoulders by himself. But I do think there's an interesting, you know, somewhere between second and third option type in there as like a second side guy who can beat closeouts uh, with his strength and make smart passes. And like he still rebounds well for his position and and he's got size and strength to to play defense against big wings. And he like the one thing you could say about the dude is that dude like works his ass off. And, you know, you're never going to have effort concerns with him, I don't think. So, you know, there are there are things there that can make him a useful player. The, those two guys, I think, have sort of obvious I can contribute in this way type skills. Um, all of the other young guys, um, I don't know that you can necessarily say that. Um, Damian Dotson, I think, before this season um, showed a little bit on defense and he shot pretty well. At least he has not shot well at all this year. Um, so I don't, I don't know that you can necessarily say the same about him anymore. So everybody else would be on the table to me. And that's sort of where I'm at with them. To me, the model, the takeaway here is a team that is a close train right away, and that's the hinky Sixers, that the idea of volume in the draft is extremely important. And no team is going to have a is going to bat a thousand in the draft. And so you want as many opportunities. And one of the other important consequences of the season from the Knicks perspective is those Dallas picks are a lot less valuable than we thought they would be. And there's no guarantees that, that in 2020-21, the Mavs will be awesome, but preliminary indications are that they will be. And so then that becomes a less valuable proposition. So then when you look at the picks other than their own that they have, and remember the Knicks don't have their their own seconds for the next two drafts, but those two firsts, then they have a second from Charlotte, which could be okay. I actually have two seconds from Charlotte. Going back to the, I believe that was the Wancho, or sorry, the uh, Billy. Billy Hernan Gomez trade. And so I, I think that the Knicks have to, they have to go at it. But the point that you brought up in terms of like that other team's value is, is really important. I think that's going to be a takeaway I haven't written about this yet for The Athletic, but I have I have a couple of irons in the fire mentally on how this is going to go. Is I think there are going to be a lot of teams that are willing to part with players on their roster, but that they don't want to give up assets to make it happen. And so there will be opportunities, but I think that the teams that are willing to take on players like Marcus Morris and all that are going to have to come at it from the right perspective and say, you know, we're not going to give you a first round pick, but we can make life. This is how this will be better for you. Maybe it's a, a flyer guy that they can sell. And, and there are all sorts of, and sometimes those work out. I mean, that's in some ways what happened with Markel Fultz was a salary dump that was disguised as not a salary dump. But it it is interesting that the Knicks happen to have a bunch of those different players and how they reconcile. They're probably at the forefront of this along with uh, maybe Cleveland, but Cleveland doesn't have the free agent aspirations that that the Knicks do of. Yeah, I'll get to that next. Yeah, giving up 
giving up immediate flexibility without sacrificing long-term flexibility. So I think that's going to be another storyline of this offseason. And now, while I think that the Knicks place in that but might be misguided, it does seem like they will be a through line for that story. Yeah, I think that they need to give up on the idea that they're going to be a free agent destination. Um, They have literally never once in their entire modern history sign their top target away from another team in free agency. It has not happened, and it won't happen until they prove that they could build a sustainable winning organization. And the only way that's going to happen is if they value the right kinds of things and get, you know, build a development program, get the right kind of guys in there in terms of being able to have success around star type players, um, have some sort of continuity of vision with just the way they're going to run their team. They need to not worry about who they're going to sign in free agency for a while. And that means, you know, I think that they should be willing to take on some or all of the worst contracts in the league in exchange for as many future assets as they can get. Like, the Bulls want to get rid of Cristiano Felicio? Great. Take him. Uh, somebody else wants to get rid of... Um, I, I, I had a list um, at, at one point that I tweeted out. Let me see if I can go find it. Um, I'm going to sort of keep talking while I search my tweets here. But like they should like uh, the uh, the Hornets want to get rid of Cody Zeller's two years left on his deal. You know, take it. Um, who else is, is out there? I'm. Quali- well, that's kind of that's fine. I, th- I think people can get the idea. <laughs> take take Blake Griffin's deal. Take take uh, Doug McDermott's deal. Kyle Anderson, Olenek, Waiters, James Johnson, Gorgie Jang, Wiggins, uh, DeRozan. If the Spurs want to get rid of him, uh, Exum was on the list, but he already got traded. Take John Wall. Uh, take Chris Paul. Take anybody out there that's on a deal that is negative value like go ask the team what they'd be willing to give you to take that guy on even like don't just be willing to take it if they come to you go go ask for what it would take to to get them like i I don't think that they should be ruling anything out there agreed and i wonder what the price tag is going to be for some of those right now especially considering how uninspiring the 2020 free agent classes it might just be the wrong time but i also don't think the knicks are where you are so in terms of who actually controls the team so maybe maybe those two things can square up this summer or something like that oh they're definitely not where i am Well, thank you so much for taking the time. Always a pleasure to talk to you, my friend. Thank you for having me, man. I appreciate it. Thanks so much to Jared Dubin for taking the time to come on. You can read him all over the internet, including the 538 piece that we talked about in depth. You can also check out his Patreon, Last Night in Basketball, and you can follow him on Twitter at jadubin 5 Hope you are having a wonderful holiday season, whatever it is that you celebrate. We're kind of in between Christmas and New Year's right now, and Hanukkah, I believe, is still going on. But I wanted, you know, Real GM Radio comes out every week. This was a good time to do it. Jared was available. I really do appreciate that and if you want to support the show there's so many different ways you can do it you can leave a rating leave a review in the podcast player for choosing you can spread it by word of mouth social media in person whatever makes you happy and subscribe and download every episode that is particularly useful for a show like real gm radio where it doesn't come out on a specific day of the week it's when i'm available when my guest is available 
and then it'll just pop into your podcast player whenever you're ready for it. But the single most important thing you can do for this show and any other that has them is to check out our sponsors. For this episode, that is our friends at betonline.ag. Use that podcast one promo code for a 50% sign-up bonus. It looks tentatively like the next Real GM Radio will be out relatively quickly. Um, That is when my guest is available. He kind of wants to record before New Year's, so I'm not making any promises. I'm not saying who it will be, but that is the way things are looking, so that's another reason to subscribe is you never know how quickly or slowly they're going to turn around. So you can look forward to that. I um, My written work is going to be popping up more on The Athletic. I broke down the Exum-Clarkson trade, and then I'm working on a piece, a Warriors piece that I think will be out in a little bit, and then a few other things, obviously, in the works. Dunked On is going on strong. We are going to be doing awards and a much-discussed podcast. We're going to be doing the top 10 prospects in the NBA. Those are both going to be next week. I don't know the dates yet because we're still working on prep. So you'll get that then. Then we'll be more on a normal schedule both the week after that. So check all that out. If you have any feedback on this show or really anything else, good, bad, or indifferent, NBA at gmail.com is the way to convey that to me. If you take the time to write it, I will take the time to read it. I don't promise I'll respond, but I do promise I will read it. And show will be back at some point in the next in the next well i guess it's eight days but it'll probably be back pretty soon so you can keep an eye out for that thank you so much for listening take care and make it a great day